This is The Blunt Doctor Show On a very early Thursday morning I've like Continued to drift On when I actually record these things Like it started As a sort of mid-morning thing And then an afternoon thing And now I'm I've continued in the evenings and now I'm doing it basically in the middle of the night. Well, whatever. You know, who the hell cares? It's my thing. And um, I can do whatever the fuck I want to. And I think that's the most important part that I always try to remember. And that's why I'm opening with social justice messages and ranting and listing the show as a gambling show, even though I haven't even really talked about my bets yet. I haven't figured out what talk about with gambling yet because with gambling you you know you have specific audiences and quite honestly the parlay gambling audience is a small audience and so it's hard to only talk about those things you know is anyone interested on my 3am Korean basketball league parlay bet you know because if anyone's interested in that I can produce content like that for days. You know, there's that uh, VSL, like Vegas Sports, or VSI, Vegas Sports, VSN, Vegas Sports Network. I should, I should That should have been obvious. But in any case, it's run out of South Point Casino in Las Vegas, or at least it was before the pandemic. Um, VSIN? Anyway. That uh, old racist douchebag Brent Musburger worked there. The weird dude who uh, hit on Catherine. Uh... Boy, I'm really jumping around here right now. Anyway, it's the Blunt Doctor Show, and I'm. I've had some Keef hits, and it's 1:23 in the morning, so I'm ready to just vibe and do some talking, which I think is pretty much the general theme of this show. One cool thing that happened today: Becky Hammond, the first woman to be a head coach in an NBA game. Greg Popovich gets thrown out. Becky Hammond came in. Now, the annoying part of this story is that the AP went on Twitter and said that she was the first woman to direct an NBA team. I think they tried to avoid using the word coach because technically she has coached an NBA team before she assistant coached the team. So just fucking say head coach then. Like, why say direct? No one ever says you've directed an NBA team. That's literally not a thing that people say. <laughs> no one says that. You direct an orchestra, you know? You direct a movie. You don't direct a fucking NBA team. And so it's just an insulting thing to Becky Hammond that when she acts as an NBA head coach for the first time that any woman has ever done that, that they choose to, you know phrase it in it and this is just more problems with the u.s media not to get too off topic again but the kentucky suicide bomber that's a terrorist attack that's a terrorist attack in america from an american citizen and they call him a solo bomber and all these things and they don't call it a terrorist attack it's a fucking terrorist attack on an american city by an american we have a problem in this media calling things for what they are, especially when it relates to white men. If 
anyone else had replaced Greg Popovich, it obviously wouldn't have been a story. But if anyone had asked the question about who took over for Popovich, they most assuredly would have said coached. And with Becky Hammond, they said directed. So it's just an insulting thing. And there's just always, you know, the way white men are treated is just significantly different from everyone, everything else. And I say that as, you know, a white man, gender fluid, those issues presenting, whatever. That's not really the point. Right now I am presenting as a white man. So speaking as a white man, I can acknowledge that we simply get away with too much and we are granted too much by the media. And that needs to stop. What is cool about this is that Becky Hammond will be the first uh, woman to be a head coach in the NBA. So that'll be, you know, the first woman to be a head coach in, you know, the four major U.S. sports leagues. That statement is a little uncomfortable to me because it implies that the WNBA is not a major sports league, and it is. It is not maybe a revenue-generating sport. You know, we think of the big four, essentially, at least in the United States, basketball, football, hockey, and baseball. You know, soccer is not that much of a revenue generator here. You know, women's basketball is not much of a revenue generator, but they are still fantastic professional sports with top-flight athletes. But this, you know, Becky Hammond becoming, you know, the first coach in, you know, a woman's league, or excuse me, the first woman coach in a man's league in the same year that we had, you know, the first woman kick for a college professional team, you know, we're breaking barriers all the time. And this stuff is very cool. And the thing about Becky Hammond, too, is that she's just a good coach. Like, go back and watch. There was a year... It was a couple years ago. I can't off the top of my head remember the exact year. But the Suns and the Spurs played each other in the Summer League Championship. And sure, it's a Summer League Championship. It doesn't mean a lot. But go watch the sections where they were on the sideline filming her coaching, the way she was interacting with the players, the strategy she was describing with them. That's a basketball coach. It simply doesn't matter that she's a woman. You know, these things just don't, it means nothing. So, you know, I do think that um, it's going to, she's been, you know, in the interview process before. Um, I think it's something that will definitely happen. If a woman was hired, she's like the number one candidate. You know, she's been in the Spurs system for a long time now. You know, now she has some, you know, albeit, you know, only part of a game, but still she coached the game. It's still very cool. Um, but you know, this is something that when it happens, it's going to be very cool. It's going to be interesting to see what team does it. Um, But, you know, I think that, you know, today's NBA players, you know, there's always been some sort of, well, are the men going to listen to a woman coaching them? Especially a young NBA team, an upstart NBA team filled with, you know, younger kids. You know, I know that they're not looking for a new head coach, but for example, the Cleveland Cavaliers, like as an, as an organization, I don't know how progressive they are, but the players on the team, especially like Kevin Love, they're generally pretty progressive. They're young. I think that they would have no problem with it. And in fact, um, the Cavaliers do have a woman on their staff. Her name evades me right now. I'm sorry. I don't know the name of every single head coach in the NBA or assistant coach in the NBA. I probably should. Um, the point is we are improving. I'm not showing the improvement right now by not knowing all the names off the top of my head, but the point is we're still getting there. And it would be wonderful if we could, 
you know, reach a day where, you know, women being head coaches is so prevalent that it's not even news. You know, that would really be good. Of course, we recently had, um, you know, a, a woman be an assistant coach for the first time in the NFL as well with the 49ers. So we're making a lot of progress on this front. Um, we still need to make more progress on the front of making sure that we have more black coaches and black executives. Um, that is something that we still haven't. Um, and, you know, we need more black majority partners just as well. We need to get rid of the word owner in sports. I think I've said before that owner is a slur on the show and we need to continue to make sure that we just get, just get rid of, just get rid of that. Um, and those are some of the thoughts on that. One other little ranty get off my lawn old man thing. I don't, I love shooting. We all love three point shooting. We love cool shots. It's awesome. The talent in the league right now, it's incredible. The things that we see, Steph Curry's the best, best shooter of all time. Duncan Robinson's amazing. But the NBA is devolving into three point shooting contests. And it's not so much in the playoffs. You know, the playoffs are a little different. There is more strategy, there's more gamesmanship, there's more complex defenses, but still in a lot of situations, even in the playoffs, these games essentially devolve into a three-point shooting contest. It's a track meet up and down the court, who makes the most threes? And then in the playoffs, it's, you know, slow, bring the ball up half court, and then who can come off the most curl screens and hit threes? And of course... Bigs matter and, you know, LeBron drives to the rim and AD is force fly. You know, I understand all these things. But in a lot of cases, the NBA is simply, is just, it's becoming a three-point meet. And here's how I know this is a bad thing. Because I'm someone who was wrong about the evolution of the three-point game for a long time. Because, like, I even for a while, I'll acknowledge, I thought there was a time that Steph Curry was better than LeBron because of how good his gravity was. Well, over time, we've seen that that's not true. And that, you know, Steph Curry, you know, for as incredible a shooter and as good as a player he is, he needs many players around him. He can't just easily carry a team with his shooting. He needs, you know, he needs many other functional players. You know, LeBron could play with four dudes who had no business being on the court and at least still do some damage. You know, Steph, while he can still score, he really struggles to, you know, improve the play of, of those around him. I think Zach Lowe said... You know, Steph Curry is someone who can raise the ceiling of a really good team, but, you know, who can't necessarily raise the floor of a really bad team. Um, and so that's, you know, something we've seen here. So I was wrong about Steph Curry and what his gravity means and all of those things. And um, as we see over time, you know, simply that, you know, the again, the Warriors had four All-NBA players, and that was really just it. LeBron is still, you know, king doesn't play defense in the regular season. I understand why we're not giving him the MVPs. But the simple fact of the matter is the three-point shot has changed the game, whether you're the Warriors or anyone else, to the point that, you know, the other night the Bucks hit 29 threes. Literally no one will beat you when, when you do those things. Um, and it reaches a certain point where that's all that teams are scheming to do is shoot as many threes as possible, you know. Daryl Morey's whole thing is, you know, at the rim or beyond the arc. And all of this is fine, but there needs to be some structural change to the game. 
because there's literally no point to just like playing horse and playing three point shootout where we're just taking the most difficult long distance step back. Like that's not what we should be doing right now. We need to improve the game. There's more to basketball than just shooting threes. And there's a couple of ideas that I have that we could resolve some of this. Number one, lengthen and widen the court. Like, we don't necessarily need such a small court. We can make it bigger. I know it would be weird to suddenly, you know, step outside the bounds of all that. But you make a bigger court, you can take the threes back. And if you, you know, you drop the three-pointer another foot or two even, that's going to change the game significantly. I know that people wanted, like, a four-point line or something. That's stupid. Just make the three-pointer more difficult. Just make it so, you know, not everyone can just stand in the corner and hit threes because they're shorter. Let's make it more difficult. The other thing that could be done, you know, we change the goaltending rules. You know, some people go to, um, you know, the European style where there's, you know, more cylinder interference allowed in certain scenarios if the ball's already touched the rim. I'm also thinking, you know, you could leave the court as it is and just get rid of the goaltending rules altogether. Doesn't matter if the ball touched the backboard, I can block it. Doesn't matter if the ball's on its way down, I can I can I can block it. You know, there will be, you know, certain things that you know, you may have to legislate out, but the point is the game is literally trending towards like 60% of the shots are going to be threes before too long. And it's just not fun to have a three-point contest. That's not what basketball is. There's more to the game. But there's not more to the game when everyone is so phenomenally talent, phenomenally talented because the game is essentially too easy. And when everyone is capable of suddenly, you know, shooting 35 to 40% and, you know, again, the corner threes are so short that the entire goal of every offense in the NBA is to scheme as many corner threes as possible. I understand that there will always be high-value plays that people go after, but we can't argue that it's more fun when those high-value plays are dunks. And I'm not trying to say that we should return to the Michael Jordan era of shooting mid-range all the time. I'm not trying to say that, but there needs to be some structural changes to the game because there's just too many damn threes, and they need to figure something out. If it's allowing more defense... If it's allowing more physical defense so that there's not so much just unbelievable shooting, that would be okay as well. There, but there's got to be something before we literally reach a point where, you know, it's just two-thirds of the shots are threes, and if you made your threes, you won. If you didn't, you lost. You know, there there needs to be more than that. And I, I think that we'll get there, but I don't know what steps will be taken. But that's kind of my old man get off my lawn speech for today few other thoughts before getting into uh, a couple of games I really uh, dove into today one thing I've been thinking about lately and this is not necessarily reaction to the Celtics early season but just the thought I've been thinking Brad Stevens is regarded as one of the best coaches in the NBA like Brad Stevens is by most people probably regarded as a better coach than Ty Lue. Ty Lue has a fucking championship against the Warriors. 
in their like prime. Like, okay, sure. Before KD. But it's still the 73 and 9 Warriors. It's still a 3-1 comeback. It's still an incredible championship. So how is that dude better than the guy that's never even got there? Like Brad Stevens really in last year's playoffs, Nick Nurse like pretty much outcoached him with the worst team. And then the Heat, you know, pretty much outplayed them the majority of all their games. As much as some of them were close down to the end, you know, Spolstra just, his defenses were and offenses were both more creative. Same thing they did to the Bucks. And I think that we've been putting Brad Stevens in the, like, championship coach range when he's more like maybe in the Budenholzer range. And, you know, that's not to say that he's a bad coach. He's not. But, you know, to hear Celtics fans say it, you know, he's, you know, Red Hour back himself. And it just, this is not to say that he can't reach that level. But I think there's been a little bit of overreaction to, you know, how good of a coach Brad Stevens is. I'm not saying he's bad. But he's had... Many good teams that, you know, for example, were the Heat teams, was the Heat team that beat the Bucks last year, was that team significantly better than the Celtics teams with Kyrie that lost to the Bucks? Because, you know, Giannis wasn't, on this level at that point. And they, sure, Kyrie maybe didn't want to be there in these things, but aren't chemistry issues sort of part of your job as a coach managing all that stuff? And I don't know a lot about his personality or whatever, but I do think that he maybe gets a little credit or respect or a claim that he doesn't necessarily deserve. You know, he gets talked about among the best coaches in the game, but the best coaches in the game have rings. Eric Spolster is a better coach. Nick Nurse is a better coach. Ty Lue is a better coach. I don't care that, you know, these people, well, Nick Nurse had Kawhi Leonard. He had Kawhi Leonard for one season, and he had Kawhi Leonard and a couple of aging guys and some role players, and he got through multiple great teams. Eric Spolstra coached a Miami team to the finals that very few of us, I didn't expect them to get there, and they blitzed the Bucks. Just, again, well, with the three-point shootout, they burned him from deep. And he got to the finals. And, you know, LeBron, Wade, and Bosch are not. You don't coach your way to four straight NBA finals because you don't know what you're doing. There have been plenty of star players who have never been able to get over the hump. Kawhi Leonard completely flamed out with the Clippers last year. He won a title in his first year with the Raptors. Couldn't do it with the Clippers. Couldn't even get to face LeBron. 
because Doc is maybe not the coach we thought he was. And he also has a championship. If Brad Stevens had made a run to the finals, I wouldn't be saying any of this right now. Again, it's one thing to have not won a championship in the era of the Warriors, in the era of LeBron. Those things are completely understandable. But to not have even at any point gotten to the NBA Finals, it's hard for me to talk about you as the best coach or one of the best coaches in the game. The premature Eastern Conference Finals runs, he did a good job, but it was against some of the worst competition that we've seen in the NBA playoffs. And when you provide context for all these things, I just want to see a little more from Brad Stevens before he gets discussed as being better as people who actually have championship rings. And I hope that my perception of how people feel about Ty Lue versus Brad Stevens is just wrong. But I see people trash Ty Lue as a coach all the time on Twitter. And I hear people trash Ty Lue as a coach all the time. And then I hear people speak and just throw and heap praises onto Brad Stevens. And I just I just wonder a little bit. Again, you know, maybe I'll be proven wrong. But last year I was really high on the Celtics in the playoffs, and they disappointed. And I'm just starting to wonder what level. And for that, for that, you know, on that same note, is Budenholzer also in that boat? Budenholzer is definitely in the boat of in the boat of we need to see more this year. Like he's definitely there. But is he in the boat of he's not as good of a coach as he thought as we thought? Is he overrated? I don't necessarily think he is super overrated because I don't know that anyone was he ever rated as like a championship coach. I don't think he's been. Um I think he's been, you know, thought of as a championship contending coach, and he has been that. He hasn't really been able to get over the hump, but I think that Brad Stevens has been put in the classes that are, you know, near the top. And he should be more in that, you know, sort of Mike Budenholzer range. That's really, you know, and we'll see how it all shakes out. But, like, how many times do Nick Nurse and Eric Spolstra need to kick these guys' asses before we start giving them all the respect? I've been on, I've said this before many times, I'll say it again. I don't know if I said it on this version of the podcast or the YouTube version, whatever. The point is, if I was buying a team, if I just had money, what I would do right now is I would go call Zach Lowe from ESPN and I'd be like, we're going to go and we're going to figure out a way to get Eric Spolstra from Miami. I know that Eric Spolstra would never leave Pat Riley. I know that. But I'm just saying... If I had all the money in the world, my goal would be to bring in my two favorite basketball minds, Zach Lowe and Eric Spolstra, and say, figure this shit out. Because I do truly believe that Eric Spolstra is basically the best coach in the NBA. He's he's done so much. Yes, his championships were with LeBron. Yes, he just lost to LeBron in the final. I understand those things. But when you just watch an Eric Spolstra team year to year, he has continued to embody everything that Pat Riley instilled in Miami. And just if I could choose any coach, 
Monty Williams is quickly becoming the answer. Like I'm, you know, obviously as a Suns fan, I'm falling in love with Monty Williams, but you know, it's also still early and realistically looking at history and what I believe if I could choose any coach right now, I would choose Eric Spolstra. That's just the truth. And I do wonder a little bit in terms of Budenholzer going back to him in terms of the, I wonder if teams have kind of figured him and Giannis out a little bit. I mean, the Bucks are two and three. Again, when their other guys hit threes, they win. When they don't, they lose. But like, you've structured around a two-time MVP and you can't figure out how to win games in those situations. It's problematic. And I don't know if it's team building or coaching or some combination of those things, but Giannis signing the extension locks in Giannis. doesn't lock in the other people. And I know that the Bucks have been strongly in favor of Budenholzer and everything, and I, I don't think he's going anywhere, but there's got to be some... They can't just flame out again. Something's got to change here. And I know that everyone's talked about this to death, but there's got to be, in, you know, the addition of Drew Holiday locks it in. Something's got to be different here. Otherwise, who knows? On the Celtics, shout out to Josh Eberle. Um, he's on Twitter. He's on the Great Dunks and Discourse podcast with my man Jabari. I'm a huge fan of that podcast. Huge fan of both those guys on Twitter and just general. They're cool dudes. Josh always kind of posts uh, the line of the night. Uh, he posts a lot of interesting stats. You should definitely follow him on Twitter. Um, one thing that he posted today that I thought was really interesting and in his line of the night, um, I didn't see the whole line, but Jalen Brown had 42 points. And a lot of people mentioned or everyone has just sort of talked about, you know, you know, what, what about Jalen Brown? You know, should the Celtics have traded Jalen Brown when they had a chance for Kawhi? Should they have traded him in any number of situations? Can he make another leap? Can he blah, blah, blah. You know, there's Jalen Brown is the, you know, was he worth the extension? All these things. And if you go look at his stats and actually dig in, I saw that 42 points and I was like, okay. And you go dig in and you can see like there are, and sure, scoring 42 tonight factors in, but you know, he's got career highs in scoring and assists. His three point percentage is down, but he's shooting over 50% from the field for the first time. Um, if you look at his per 36, he's got a bump of four points and one assist per 36 minutes. So that's like a significant increase in usage. Obviously, some of that is due to Kemba being out. Um, but also some of it is probably due to Gordon Hayward being gone and him needing to create more, whether it's for himself or others. Um, and so that, you know, Jalen Brown getting better. I don't think that Brad Stevens has been a bad player development coach at all. I think it's fair to say he's been really solid in player development. And so I think that... You know, that's one area that we can truly, you know, give him a, a high five on, if you will. And this season from Jalen Brown, 
may really prove that. But it's also possible that this is just like a hot start and a blip. But that's something I really want to keep my eye on because we've seen how good Tatum is. We've seen Tatum essentially play the role of superstar at times. Um, again, in that premature Eastern Conference Finals run with the big dunk on LeBron, where they were, you know, they did push. They pushed LeBron to a Game 7 in the Eastern Conference Finals. And then they were never in the Game 7, really. And LeBron just took it away from them. Um, you know, he just he just ended their season. Um, it was a nice series, but it was hard to believe the Celtics were ever going to pull that upset off. And I think that is a lot of where Brad Stevens' cachet comes from. I guess I'll give him that. But nonetheless, other guys actually have rings in similar situations or finals appearances in similar situations. So it does, you know, close only means so much in any case, good with player development, going to be interested to see what Jalen Brown does this season. Lakers today, uh, Wes Matthews has pretty much sucked today. He scores 18. I've been saying a bunch of times that Taylor Horton Tucker will be more important to the Lakers than Wes Matthews. It's been clearly true. You look at their per 36 numbers, again, it's in small batches, but like Taylor Horton Tucker should just be playing more. And if the reason he's not playing more is because Wes Matthews is a veteran and better chance of winning, blah, 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 just get Taylor Horton Tucker the minutes right now. He should be playing right now because it, he will be better in the playoffs if you get him more experience. Wes Matthews is just not going to provide anything to the Lakers in terms of helping truly win a championship. And you've got this young guy who really can ball and he's just not playing enough because Wes Matthews like has a good night every now and then it's not smart. And the Lakers just need to think about winning the championship this season and who's going to be the best player to help them in the playoffs. And again, it's THT. It's, it's not Wes Matthews. I'm sorry. I just, I'm not, I'm not on board the Wes Matthews train to the Lakers. Now, again, I want the Lakers to crash and burn, so give the ball to Wes Matthews all the time for all the fucking hell I care, but from a pure basketball perspective, that kid should be playing. It's better for the team. The Hawks and Nets game, just a three-point shootout track meet, literally. And then in the end, Kyrie just took over. The one thing I will I will say, I've been pretty hard on Kyrie. You know, I, I made fun of them for the whole Sage thing, and I, you know, I've criticized some of his moves, but there's no question that he is happy in Brooklyn. You can really see it the way he's playing, the way he's on the bench, the, like the way he interacts with his teammates right now. This this man is happier than he's been, and so good for him for getting to a place in a situation that he's happy. And also, the fact that he's happy, I mean, the man's cooking. He took over this game down the stretch. KD was balling all night. I think he came super close to a triple-double, didn't get it. Um, But Kyrie down the stretch was running pick-and-rolls and and hitting in the mid-range. He was hitting step-back triple. I mean, you know, he was just in his bag, doing Kyrie shit all the whole clutch. And while most of the game was just, you know, run up and down, shoot, run up and down, shoot, run up and down, shoot. 
that in the clutch, Kyrie did it all. There was not really interior defense on these teams, though. I mean, DeAndre is out there trying. And, you know, Jared Allen is pretty good. But for the most part, there's just so much running that everyone's just at the rim or in position to shoot a triple before there's any possibility of good defense at the rim. And, you know, for the Hawks, Capella is a good rim protector, but again, it's just everything's happening so quickly that it's, you know, I mean, this game, you know, it was 145 to 141, I think. This is like a game from the 40s where they're just running up and down the court. Now they're shooting threes is the difference. But in a seven-game series, obviously the Nets would win here. But it just made me think about, you know, the Hawks are actually kind of a good matchup for the Nets because they can, they're one of the few teams that would theoretically just be able to shoot with them. But what the Nets have that the Hawks don't is a viable half court offense. Because as good as the Hawks are and as much as they can score, when things break down for them and they're not able to run as much, that is where the problems begin. And that's what the playoffs are all about. Whereas the Nets literally have two guys in Kyrie and KD who can just get you a bucket at any time. And that truly matters in the playoffs. When things aren't working, you need guys who can keep the offense afloat. They can do it in ISO. Uh, you know, Kyrie can run a pick and roll. Kevin Durant is lethal in the pick and roll. Um, it's, it's, you know, KD can play the, you know, the big or the PNR ball handler, honestly. Like they can both do everything. And so, until Trey Young, I mean, Trey Young is really good, and he can get his buckets at all times. But until we see him scoring in the clutch in the playoffs and controlling that offense, you know, for all of James Harden's flaws and all the things we say about him, when things aren't working, he can ISO and get a bucket. He's a phenomenal ISO player. He's a phenomenal passer. He's an offense unto himself. Trey Young can do some of those things, but his size is a problem. It's been a problem for Kemba in Boston. And again, that's why the Jalen Brown thing is so interesting. Does Kemba stay? If Kemba's healthy, you know, does Jalen Brown keep that uptick going in his usage? And that's sort of the thing here is who's going to get the uptick in Hawks usage in the playoffs when things are dicey? I think the answer to that is Bogdan. I think that's the plan. Everyone loves to talk about his exploits in, uh, you know, EuroLeague. And, you know, he's hit all these big shots and all these international tournaments. But, you know, for the most part, he hasn't had an opportunity to do that in the NBA because he was playing with the Kings. Well, the Hawks are off to a good start. And so when you come down to, you know, the we're walking the ball up court and... You know, things aren't, you know, there's no track meet style play and, uh, you know, we're trying to get everyone in position and cut and screen and all these things. How will the Hawks function in that scenario? They've got enough guys. They've got enough players that they should be able to still score. They're not going to be able to shoot like they did tonight. They were, you know, I don't, I don't even know. I saw anyone miss in this game, but. There will be games where Trey Young is struggling against teams that are longer. And the question becomes, how does he respond to that? And how do the Hawks respond to that? And I think the answer is going to be Bogdan. 
In some ways, it'll be, you know, again, spread the floor. Gallo is there to help. But I think that Bogdan is going to become the closer, if you will. Trey Young is the starter. Bogdan's the closer. I almost feel like that's the Hawks strategy. We won't really know until we see, you know, more of this game is just a tough because even in the end game when it was close, there was still so much running back and forth. When we get to the playoffs, we'll really see what the Hawks are made of. And I do think I was a little hard on them right as we came into the season. They do look like a playoff team. The one thing I will say about the Nets in terms of a negative is that this does show sort of what we were talking about with them is that they don't have the defense. So in the way that Miami upset the Bucks last year by just like repeatedly exploiting their strategies and hitting triples, if the whole conglomerate of coaching over there on the Nets bench can't get it together, I can see an upset occurring. The obvious difference here is that, you know, the – the the hubs of the Brooklyn offense, Katie and Kyrie can shoot the three. Giannis can't. So I understand that the strategy that the Nets or the, the Heat used against the Bucks wouldn't work against the Nets. I understand that. But the Nets aren't going to play like really good defense. I mean, they just lost to the Hornets. So when they don't shoot well, they can lose to the Hornets. And when they do shoot really well, they can still be in trouble to lose a game because they're going to give up 141. Now, they won, but you're never going to give up 141 points and be like, wow, we played great on defense. So, there are holes in this team. And based on what I've seen so far, in a theoretical matchup with the Lakers in the finals, I still think the Lakers would win. Because I think that the Lakers' size would pose too much of a problem for the Nets. And I think that the Nets, I mean, they would simply have to shoot this level of three for four games. And maybe that's possible, but I think that's way more difficult in the finals. Now, I will say, I was a little skeptical about the Nets. I picked the Heat to still make the finals. I'm not coming off my picks. I made my picks. but. It seems like I'm going to be wrong about that pick because the Nets truly seem like they're going to be the team that's going to be in the finals. I'll tell you another pick that I made that looks like it's going to be wrong, and that is Luka Doncic for MVP. Like, what the hell is going on right now? The Hornets, by the way, a couple of nice wins. They beat the Nets. Now they beat the Mavs. They beat the Mavs handily. They whooped ass. And again, this is another one of those nights where it's hot shooting. But we're at the point where the Mavericks' only win was against the Clippers team that openly admitted that they were not prepared for that game because they had just seen their family days before and they weren't thinking about it. You know, that game is embarrassingly bad for the Clippers, but that's the only win the Mavericks had. A game that the Clippers literally admitted to the public that they did not prepare for. That's the one that the Mavericks won. And I like sat here and talked about, well, the narrative is perfect for Luca, and we all know how good he's going to be and blah, 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 blah. And now everyone's talking about, is he in shape? Is he out of shape? 
you know, Jabari and Josh Eberly, my guys, both specifically very much on that all the time. They're saying this dude's not in shape. Maybe so. But, I mean, when do we hit the panic button with the Mavs? Is it way too early? Probably. It's still probably too early. But there's also a little bit of this is embarrassing at times. Like, if Luka Doncic is as good as we think he is, and he is, there are certain games where you need to respond. And it's not that, like, you know, everyone has off nights, but they've now had, like, four of them or three of them. And the only one that they were able to win was, again, when the Clippers were just like, yeah, we forgot about this game. <laughs> like, I love Rick Carlisle. I have repeatedly talked about how good Rick Carlisle is. But two things are different right now in Dallas. Number one, Chris Porzingis is hurt. So that's obviously part of it. But number two, Steven Silas is gone. And how much of how good the offense was and how everything was working related to Steven Silas? Certainly some of it. And the fact that Christian Wood is balling in Houston and they're playing above expectations and that Luka Doncic looks terrible for Dallas and that they're playing below expectations, those things certainly stand out. And I'm not going to sit here and say that Rick Carlisle is not a good coach. I'm not trying to say that at all. Uh, But there certainly is, you know, this is gut check time for the Mavericks, let's say. It's not panic time. It's not, you know, hit the red button time. It's nothing like that. But it's gut check time. Like, who are you? What are you trying to do? Because just to be completely honest, like, Porzingis shouldn't make this difference if Luka Doncic is LeBron in the way that we think he is. And I think he is. So... They should simply be playing better than they are. They played a good game against the Suns. And, you know, I'm not mad at them for losing. Obviously, I'm happy that they lost. But this this game was embarrassing, just honestly. This is a game where they simply, it just, the Hornets started to pull away in the third. And... It was still, you know, it was 11, 12, 15. Like, it's not, it's nowhere near unheard of to cut that lead back to single digits and make it a, a game and get it going again. And the Mavs just look lethargic as hell. And I understand all of the things going on, but it just, the I just, I don't, I don't know what else to say right now. I mean, again, maybe it's way too early and, you know, out of shape and back-to-backs and this and that and all the, you know, maybe it is all that stuff. If you look at a couple of numbers for Dallas, they're 26th in the league in three-point percentage. They're 27th in the league in assists per game. They're 20th in the league in field field goal percentage. So some of that stuff is just like, you know, they're not making shots. So that's that happens. But also, when you lost the guy who coordinated your offense, who coordinated the NBA's number one offense at one point when it was old Dirk and a bunch of dudes. Man, that Rajon Rondo trade, when they traded for Rajon 
at the end of his contract with Boston. That was such a disaster. The Mavs had the number one offense in the NBA, and maybe they weren't a true finals contender, but never break up a number one offense. And in any case, the guy who was in charge of most of what was going on there is now gone. So they're going to make more shots. That's going to trend up for them. But maybe there is something to be said for assistant coaches. We see it all the time in the NFL when a coordinator leaves and it makes a head coach look worse. We could be seeing a little bit of that here. And it may be time for Rick Carlisle to dig in. And if it is truly just conditioning and shape and back-to-backs and the situation and the new pieces and this and that, and, and you know, okay. But I'm not watching a team that's playing with any confidence right now. And Luca himself, I mean, sure, you know, his high usage still fills up the stat sheet, but... I'm just not sure. And I think that I expected regression from the Nuggets. I expected regression from the Jazz. I expected the Kings to kind of stay where they were. I expected the Mavs to be good, but the Mavs may be undergoing some regression right now. Maybe it's just an overreaction. It's early, but when we watch Luka carry them, to incredible wins and then he's suddenly not able to even put up efficient games the system's breaking down a little bit for them and they just have to retool it fix it up and they'll be fine like long term the Mavs are going to be fine obviously you've got a franchise player you've got another very good player you've got some you know some other pieces you're going to be fine but This team was, you know, some people were like, oh, who knows what the Mavericks are going to do this year. And it doesn't seem like it's going to be a whole lot. So we're going to see how they, you know, maybe they'll go on a 10-game win streak. Who knows? But, like, when you compare them to how the Suns are playing right now, the Suns, you know, you look at the Suns preseason. Like, their first couple of preseason games were, like, double-digit losses as they were working guys in. And then, you know, as the preseason went on, they were playing guys long minutes, getting ready for the season. Because it was just such a short, you know, training camp and preseason. And the losses were fewer points. And, you know, we lost the first Kings game by three and then come back and win by 16 and then blow out the Pelicans. The Suns are trending up. And it's really early. But the numbers all look good and are trending in the right direction. We're going to have to check again in two, three weeks. Again, it's it's a long season. Even in this shortened season, it's still 72 games. So I'm not trying to be overreactionary and tank the Mavs and say it's all over. But what I'm saying is there was a certain level of, oh, Luka's going to walk the Mavs into X wins. And just like Harden, he's an offense unto himself. All this stuff. That doesn't seem to be the case right now. And we're going to need to see how the Mavs retool and fix that situation. Um and this will be one of the more interesting jobs that Rick, Car- Rick Carlisle has done as a coach. Because when you start in this big of a hole, usually it's not as big of a deal. But with 10 fewer games, it matters more. So we'll see what the Mavs do. And lastly, 
nightcap Clippers and Blazers game. Another sort of track meet type game, but you know the Clippers really just ran away with this one. They were up in the 30s at some point. Um, the Blazers, I just don't really understand what some people saw in the Blazers coming into this season. Like, I thought I was nuts for a minute. Like, I was really low on the Blazers, and then Zach Lowe was really high on the Blazers. And Zach Lowe is like a genius mind. I've literally said I would want him to be GM of my team. So I'm like, oh, I'm an idiot. And then I hear Kevin O'Connor say, no, why is everyone high on the Blazers? And I and I feel sane again. And it just, I don't know, like, how many times we have to watch Dame Lillard drag this team to wins they don't deserve. Like, C.J. McCollum is nice, but he's basically a poor man's dame. And I don't know what the point is of having, like, the same player. There, I mean, like, dame is just sort of like a less version, or C.J. is just sort of like a less dynamic version of dame. Don't get me wrong. C.J. is a good player, but, like, they would benefit from having just different talent around Dame and they, you know, they just kind of run it back every year and they make tweaks and, you know, good for them for having the respect to do that. But you also needed to watch last year and see Dame just dragging this team. They just don't have the necessary depth and Carmelo's a year older and Nurkic is not necessarily returned to form. And, you know, everyone's well, they've got these young and, you know, some of their young talent is okay. I just, I don't see, what everyone else necessarily sees with the Blazers. And that's kind of shown up so far They're, You know, they're just, they've had a, some surprising, you know, a couple of surprising wins and then a couple of, couple of, you know, losses where their, you know, defense looks terrible. And it's, again, it's probably going to be that way this year where, you know, they win 30 to 35 games and it's, you know, they're close to 500 or whatever. Cause Dame just drags them. But, that is a team that could use just a new thought process. You know, you don't need to get rid of Dame necessarily. Dame is still so good and his game will age pretty well. He's still got a few years left, but I mean, they haven't changed the coach, the GM. I mean, the, the style of play, the raw. I mean, it's just every year. It's the same thing with the Blazers. They're a lot like the Hawks teams that you know existed just for years the the Joe Johnson Hawks where um you know they were just com- repeatedly in the playoffs and had fun seasons but were never you know quite a championship contender and then the Paul Millsap Kyle Korver Jeff Teague Hawks you know the Budenholzer Hawks where they were again a really fun team in the playoffs a lot but never quite you know they did have a 60 win season made a conference finals but again it's just not not a real contender. Same thing with the Blazers. Made a conference finals. They held leads in many games, double-digit leads, and they blew all of them. And they've shown some penchant for developing players, but not as much lately as they did, uh, you know, really with Damon CJ. And they haven't really great made great free agency decisions. And they have executed the trade for Nurkic that went very well. But otherwise, many of their trades and decisions have been kind of meh. And, you know, I think that the Blazers get a lot of credit that really should just kind of go to Dame for how good Dame is. Dame is, you know, I've said 
to my nephew many times, and he thinks I'm crazy. I've said to my nephew that if you swap Dame and Steph Curry, the results would largely be the same. And over time, I'm starting to think that that's not necessarily true. I think that Dame drags a team to more wins than Steph does. Dame is more able to get his own shot and create his own shot than Steph is. He's less reliant on other players. And I do think that the results would maybe be the same, but I don't think Steph Curry, I don't know that Steph Curry could have the same success in the Blazers system that Dame would have had with the Warriors. And I know that, you know, the finals and the finals performances and the MVPs and all these things for Steph Curry, I know that I'm not trying to say that Steph is worse than Dame. I'm just saying that, you know, organizations and context and teammates and coaching and roster buildup and strategy, all of those things matter. Context matters. And so the context for the Blazers is that if they make a bunch of threes, they might win. But that's never enough. You just can't rely on well, it's just we're going to get hot. There has to be more. And usually the more is really good defense. Because you have the clutch player who can hit shots. You've got CJ who can hit shots when the clutch player isn't playing well. You've got nice role players, but you don't have the defense. And you don't have a really good wing. And it, I know that those are hard to come by, but... The Blazers just don't have what it takes. And if they miss the playoffs this year, I'm not going to be shocked. And as far as the Clippers goes, honestly, I'm throwing that fucking Mavs game out. Like, just honestly, like, I really, truly think the Clippers were just truly not prepared. They're, like, partying with family. They're, like, hungover. They forgot. They're just not ready for the game. And it's just hard for me to take that seriously. Yeah, it was an embarrassing loss for them. And it shows how much preparation matters but it's not really a reflection on the talent or what their team can or will do this season. So I just don't really care about that one. And I'm just not going to stress about it. But I do think there are things to figure out with this team. I mean, Kawhi's playing in the mask. He's making jokes. I think the chemistry is way better. I think that being so lost in seeing your family that you didn't even prepare for a game, I mean, it's, I think there still could be some leadership problems. But overall, I really do think, I think the Clippers are still, a, a, I think the Clippers are this year a bigger threat to the Lakers than they were last year. I do believe that. I really love the Serge Ibaka fit. Nick Batum is actually like, he looks a little revived. You know, everyone thought he was going to go to the Lakers, and, you know, again, I knew some people were like, oh, well, Jabari. Like, oh, you know, give Nick Batum a few minutes, you know, playing, you know, for a rejuvenated, you know, or playing for a team where, you know, his chances to play meaningful basketball, you know, that stuff is basically true, but it's for the Clippers. I'm not saying that he's going to be great. But, I mean, he's dishing some nice passes, grabbing some rebounds. He's hit some shots. You know, that's I'm sure that's pissing off Hornets fans as we speak. But um, it is definitely, 
You know, it's one of those things where when you view Batum as a function of his contract, a max contract on a terrible team, he's awful. But when you view him as a minimum player coming off the bench or spot starting and just passing, grabbing rebounds, hitting the occasional shot, and doing nothing more than being a glue guy on a veteran minimum, that's a lot, you know, that's a lot more appropriate. And I do think that, you know, losing Harold, bringing in Ibaka, I mean, it seems to be... The roles are a little more defined for the Clippers. And I do find it interesting that, you know, late in games, Kennard's running a lot of pick and roll. Um, not necessarily in late in their closest games. Like I said, you know, before, Paul George has run a ton of pick and roll late in some of their games. But I just mean they clearly intend to have Kennard play a lot of point guard for them at different times. Reggie Jackson... Um, Every now and then, you, you see him, you know, still exploding to the rim a little bit. I think that the roles seem a little more defined. I just like Ty Lue as a coach better than Doc right now, and I, I like this Clippers team, and I think that they actually have possibilities to really hurt the Lakers. Not as much as the Suns. Obviously, the Suns are the Suns are the real team that are going to take this thing to the next level. And that is The Blood Doctor Show. Episode 11 in the books. Don't forget to come back for episode 12. And on and on and on. Instagram Live, Twitter, BluntDoctor.com, etc. Check it all out. Like, rate, subscribe. Share the podcast with someone else. Peace.